Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome and hello. Hello. To Hungry Ghosts, um, which is a new podcast about food, travel, booze, all good stuff like that. I'm Dan. I'm a travel writer. Um, I'm Charlie. I've spent 10 years working in the alcohol industry. We've got a professional boozeman. <laughs> Travelling alesman. Um, so, yeah, the first uh, episode is going to be about Japan um, for a few reasons. Partly because we have been there together a long time ago um, and had a hilarious time with a lot of good food, mm-hmm. a lot of good booze as Absolutely. well. Um, and I've been there recently uh, on a work trip, uh, but also because... Japan is pertinent to the name of this podcast, um, which we called it Hungry Ghosts because Hungry Ghosts are like, uh, it's like a concept in uh, Buddhist mythology, uh, so in Japan, but also in Hindu mythology, where one of the realms you can be reborn into is the realm of the Hungry Ghosts, and they're kind of like lost souls who stalk the earth, they've got big bellies with like knives sticking in them, tiny, tiny little necks. necks. Yeah. Um, and they, so they're kind of like a, a metaphor for, uh, you know, trying to sate these appetites that you, you will never be able to. Um, and so the conceit of this podcast and of the book, which I've been trying to write for the last year, uh, which may or may never see the light of day is basically that, um, you know, we are the hungry ghosts. People are the hungry ghosts. We're always, like, what food is one vehicle for trying to like attach meaning into our lives. We go around the world trying to like gobble down whatever it is. Trying to never being satisfied. Meaning. Never being satisfied. Always looking for the next thing. But food is just one of those. It's a particularly vivid example of that. Um, and so, so yeah. So we thought we'd call the podcast "Hungry Ghosts." Um, also, in every episode, uh, we're going to be drinking something which is um, relevant to to the theme of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, of course, this week it had to be sake. When I was in Japan, we, we went to this place called, the town's called Iwamura, which is in Gifu Pre- Prefecture. Whereabouts is that in, in relation to? Uh, it's in Honshu, which is like the main island. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of right in the middle. Um, so... Yeah, we got the bullet train. We, we started in Tokyo and we got the bullet train. Um, and it took like two and a half hours. But th- this place, Iwamura, is quite... Um, it, it, it's like a small town, amazing old architecture and stuff. But it was... This sake brewery was in a really cool little um, building where they have, the in Japan, the equivalent of... Um, you know, like here, there'll be bricked up windows and like an old... Yeah, an old window tax. Because of the window tax, and in Japan, apparently the equivalent was they had they were ta- they had a lower tax if their building the narrower their building was. Right. So they have all these really cool old buildings. They're like shop houses, and then you go in and you walk through, and you're like, "This is kind of this is pretty big inside." And then you keep walking, <laughs> you keep walking, you keep walking. It's absolutely fucking massive. And they fit all the the brewing equipment within the. Yeah, because when they, it's like there's tiny... maze behind you, when you go back, it's so it's, it's huge, um, and yeah, a lot of these places go way way back because you know sake breweries were um, it was like rice farmers during the kind of whatever the off season is in rice farming, they would make sake out of the off cuts of rice right. um, or the rice they couldn't use for eating, and um, and. Yeah, so that this family has been had been has been making it for hundreds of years, I think. And the one, the two that we got, we tried a really nice one there, but um, which is like their flagship one, but it was unpasteurized, so you couldn't take it even um, in an unopened bottle. It had to be refrigerated. Right. So, um, but we we've got a a sweet one, which we're having now, which is really is quite sweet. Mm. It's kind of surprising. Yeah, it's like a like a sherry or a yeah dessert wine. It is yeah, like a fino sort of thing. Mm. And then a drier one, which we've probably tried a minute. How are you doing with yours? Yeah. Finish it off? Yeah. Should we get the dryer go? Let's try the dry. Yep. 
Yeah, so we went to um, the, the second part of the the second prefecture that that I went to was um, Ishikawa, and we went to a town. There's a town there called Wajima, um, and kind of the last thing that I did on on, on the trip that I was on was we went to this. Um, it was like a lantern museum of the, of the lanterns they use in festivals and right. stuff. And this guy was was showing us all these things. He was like, oh, this represents... Blah, blah. And then he was like, and these ones we use in... And then he said some, the name in Japanese. And then he was like trying to explain... Um, it was like, but how, do you, how, how would you explain it? Uh, it's like a, it's like a violence festival. <laughs> a violence uh, festival? <laughs> yeah. And we were like, okay. Uh, so what happens at the violence festival? He was like, basically, like, people just drink absolutely loads of sake. And then they get... They uh, all the, these amazing lanterns that have been made over the course of the year to um, to use in the festival, they just rip them to shreds, <laughs> and they just like take everything out on these uh, on these things, uh, which is quite funny. But there's like yeah, there's a very esteemed tradition I think of just Japanese people getting absolutely hooned on sake. Absolutely, at, um, I think actually sake in Japanese the word sake sort of means alcohol right generally in general and obviously it also means that like rice wine but um yeah it's like if you talk about sake it's like it's very much the it's like their grog right okay interesting um yeah so yeah. it's a big part of the culture i'm right in saying that sake we obviously said wine but it's, it's more similar to a, a brewery type process mm. rather than distillation or a, a winery because it's like a fermentation of the rice yeah than, I think it's something to do oh, with a, a, um, what's the like starch. Uh, the sugars convert the starch is converted yeah. into sugars. There's no natural sugar. Exactly. In rice. Yeah. So whereas with like grapes, yeah, obviously they contain loads of sugar anyway, mm. and then it um, becomes wine. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is yeah, it's more like the beer the beer situation. Um, so yeah, they call them all sake breweries. Mm. Uh, that dry one is fantastic. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. This is more like I remember us having the first time when we went to Japan. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember buying some, the first time, going to a temple and buying some sake and like little white, white terracotta, terracotta things. Mm. Yeah, really nice, like looking. Everything in Japan looks amazing. Very aesthetically, Very aesthetically pleasing. pleasing. Like even, mm. So these bottles here are really nice. When I was at that brewery, obviously I did the old classic wine bottle trick of just going he's like which one would you like and I thought which one these two have a nice label <laughs> yeah um, no way of reading the very Japanese labels yeah uh, um, but they're pretty cool they've got some kind of what's this character on the front not sure we'll put the photo up on the social pipes if anyone <laughs> yeah, can yeah we'll put uh, them on the pipes if anyone can um, uh, yeah but yeah um yeah, well, I remember like the first time we went have, having this sake from um, from a temple. Mm. Kind of says it all because yeah, they give sake is used as like an offering to the the kami, which are the Shinto sort of gods. Um, so it's kind of there's a spiritual meaning behind it as yeah, well. It's like there's not this kind of it's not like an austere sort of you know no boozing vibe, mm. and it's a Pro bit boozing. more stronger than a communion wine, right? If you will, yeah. It's less symbolic and more just let's get shit faced on right. sake, <laughs> celebrate all that. That sounds like my kind of religion. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, I also went, I went to a temple when I was in Kyoto at the end, which was like um, it's it's called Shigendo, and it's like a it's kind of like a cross between Buddhism and Shinto, mm. um, and they do things like. Um, they do really austere practices, but it's like they'll go hiking in the mountains on their own with no, like, map or no, you know, sleeping bag or whatever for days on end. Uh, and they'll med- they'll stand in, like, a freezing waterfall and meditate. And um, they... There's, there's one where they, like... They'll tie their ankle to a rope and a rock or, or a tree or whatever and just, like, hang off a, <laughs> off a cliff. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, so it's kind the of the monks or the monks. Yeah. yeah, but but it's open to the public as they do like a firewalking festival um, in. I think it's in the springtime. 
And I was saying to the, because I was, I, was, I was talking to the guy who's like the, the monk, but he's like the head priest. So he okay. looks after the temple. And he was saying, I, I was like, so the, the public just come and they can just, because it's walking on hot coals. Right. And I was like, people can just do that straight away. And he went, um, he said, yeah, but the monks go first. Okay. So the monks take the sting out of it. Yeah. And right. then the tourists can, can go and just have <laughs> the slightly a, less hot coals, but probably still pretty toasty. Yeah. Did you ever go on it? No, but I was not. I was there at the wrong time. He was uh, like, "You've got to come back in the uh, spring." Right, okay, springtime. We'll see. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the sake drinking was just one aspect of our trip to mm, Japan. Yes, <laughs> uh, I'd say I was going to say quite a, a large aspect. Probably more like beer out of vending machines. Beer out of vending like, machines. Uh, sort of Japanese whiskey from yes. uh, corner shops. Yes, I had a nice Japanese, some nice yeah, Japanese whiskey, um, but also. The food mm. was a big core part. A of it. big, a big core. I mean, we we were young when we went there, so we had not quite had the. We weren't the men of the world that we are now. No. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, and so, I think even just eating like you know proper sashimi was. Am- I remember thinking that was amazing because mm. it was so like obviously really fresh, good quality fish. Yeah. Just sliced raw and literally presented a lot of the time you know, as a fish rather yeah. than in, in sort of slices. And just, I remember eating that and just thinking, this just tastes so good for you. Yeah. That's a, it's so simple as well. But that's one of the fundamentals of, of Japanese cuisine mm. and culture booze as well is simplicity of ingredients, focusing on the quality of an individual quality. ingredient yeah. and letting that shine. Yeah. It's like a French, French approach. Exactly. French um, rather than complicating it. And that's you know, where you get sashimi that's, yeah. you know, rice, well, no, that's not right, but sashimi, just pure yeah. fish slices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I remember, but then on the same, in my memory, and the same meal as having some amazing sashimi, we also had what is probably the most, to my palate, disgusting thing that I've ever eaten. Mm, I think we'll, we'll probably talk about a lot of disgusting stuff as these pod, as this yeah, podcast yeah, yeah, goes yeah. on, but I think that that one sticks in my mind as well. Yeah. Um, it was like a raw sea snail in its shell. So its shell was like this big, like spiky. As big as your hand. As big basically. as a fist. And yeah. it's like um, sort of spiky enough and color, variegated in color enough for you to go, this is not a creature of the land. You know? Yeah. So this, this, is... this is clearly a sea beast. Deep, deep sea. This yeah. is like Marinara Trench vibe yeah, 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 creature. Yeah, yeah. The kind of thing they you can only see it. It's got like yeah. a light coming off its yeah exactly. It was yeah. yeah bizarre. And then you had to take it out of by what what I think they call the foot, which is like the thing that connects the body mm. to the shell. Mm. Pull it out, and there was like a long sort of limp, but like cold, raw, slimy, wet, grainy, sandy thing. Mm. And you had to eat it. Obviously, you eat it. You got to yeah. do it. It's got to be done. You don't want to be that guy who's like. No, I'm not going to do it. But Christ, it's it disgusting. Really I think bad. where I think looking back, I think where I certainly went wrong was I tried to eat the foot element of it, <laughs> <laughs> which is the bit of the snail that is crawling along the seabed, eating all the shit, and unlike the foot of your your own foot, it's it's oh, is tough. That, is the foot the bit on the bottom? The foot's a bit right, on the bottom, okay. yeah. And that's yeah, the, like your own foot. Sense. It's tough because it's on, and particularly if you're on the seabed, you're going to get a pretty gnarly foot. Yeah. And I made the mistake of trying to chew that down, which was super rock, you know, rock hard, horrible. I think you're meant to Gosh. cut or bite around that and eat the the flesh, yeah, of the rest of the body of the animal. But yeah. certainly that was. Um, Deeply, deeply unpleasant. Grim. And uh, I, I just remember food. thinking, there's no, I don't, I don't, there probably isn't a way to do it with a snail, but obviously with like a, a prawn, whatever, you take out the the innards, mm, you just drag yeah. it out, and it's perfect. Yeah, very easy. But I guess with a the snail, there's no real, maybe not an easy way to do that because it was just full of sand. Every, yeah. every mouthful was just like sandy. And particularly that that particular snail. Like I've had escargot before. Yeah, uh, yeah very pleasant and very, you know, but much smaller. It's way smaller. That's and the that's the thing. It's just le- less. They're probably washed with an inch of their life, whereas this was was pretty much straight out of the sea. Yeah, and 
that was it. It's like with a with a fish, like with a really small fish, you can just eat it whole. Mm. But when they're big ones, you obviously have to gut it yeah. and stuff because it's full of shit otherwise. Yeah. But yeah, that was was not good. We had the sea snail, mm. which was an experience mm. um, to our young palates. Also on that trip, I remember eating, going to obviously like a, a street food market or, or a market where they sell street food is one of the best things. Any travel experience, yeah, of course, is it's, always it's, some of the best. Yeah, stuff. the first thing you you almost have on your list yeah, is exactly. go to a market. Yeah, go to like a night market, whatever. Mm. Um, so I remember having like chicken hearts skewered on a on a kebab stick, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Really yeah. nice, actually. Yeah. Cool. But I remember actually very rich, very lovely, like like other offal, like you know chicken liver pate, all those mm. sorts of things. A deep, deep, delicious flavour to it. Yeah. It was grilled it was on good. a little stick, like yakitori Yeah, style. like yakitori vibe, yeah, um, yeah. It was really good. And, yeah. What other interesting things did you eat on this most re- more recent trip to Japan? <laughs> How long have you got? How long have you got? <laughs> um, What's yeah. the runtime of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon we'll get it. We'll squeeze it. <laughs> it was... Uh, it was brilliant. because So, I was lucky because I was on, like, a press trip. So, I was getting... Um, just being sitting like a little baby in a bus and getting driven from one place to the next. Made, like really nice hotels, cool like traditional hotels and pretty much like breakfast, lunch and dinner was often within the same day would be mm. like in a multi-course sort of extravaganza, mm. um, particularly at dinner. And so, yeah, what did we have? We had um, something that was described to me as uh, the... The gonads of a sea cucumber. Uh, wow. But I mean, the sea cucumber to begin with is a pretty uh, yeah. horrendous looking. And actually, it's been <laughs> kind of on my uh, list of things that I'd like to eat because mm. it's, you see it in markets all the time. It looks horrible. Yeah. Because it's massive in like, um, certainly, I know that in Indonesian cuisine, for example, I think they call it trepang in Indonesia. Thinking Chinese cuisine, mm. evidently in Japanese cuisine as well. Yeah, um, and I remember also on, in an episode of Ed Stafford where he finds a sea cucumber on a rock, and he's like, "Is that like edible?" And he <laughs> yeah. puts on a fire and it explodes, and he <laughs> yeah. manages to find some horrible musk, like kind of fibrous muscle on the inside. Mm. But this was, it was pureed, and it was like just in a little pot. Um, and it was among loads of other stuff. And so obviously I ate it. And it was pretty bland, which I was right. kind of relieved about, yeah. to be honest. Um, because, you know, if that's got a really strong taste. Or it's if it's really delicious and you get really into it. Yeah, and, and then you can't <laughs> source it when you're in Manchester. You're addicted to um, gonads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bad. Um, so there's that. There was, on a similar note, um, something which... They call in Japanese it's called shirako, mm. which literally translates as white children. Uh, okay, which sounds weird enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. until you think, until you consider that um, it is the sperm sacs of cod, or and I think it's other fish as well, but cod mainly. So it's, it is literally white, white children. children, and yeah. I think they kind of lightly sort of temper it, so it's like the outside of it is a bit like deep fried. But the inside, it literally is like eating... Imagine, like, tubes, coiled round tubes of mayonnaise that have just been dipped in, like, a deep... Fr- <laughs> like a... Like a well, so how big oil. is one piece? Uh, it was is it, like, like nugget uh, shape? So it was in a bowl, it? and it was in, like, a kind of broth. Mm-hmm. And then this stuff was in the middle. So it was kind of... I'll describe it as, like, a large McDonald nugget. Okay, and each one was full of creamy... It white children. Mayonnaise. <laughs> it was full of white children. Oh my God. There's a whole family of white children in there. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of, again, it's like, you got to eat it. Yeah, you got to And it wasn't unpleasant. Um, it was like mayonnaise. The texture was exactly like mayonnaise. Mm. The taste, I guess it was slightly fishy. Yeah. But. Um, well, you'd expect that. Yeah. But it wasn't like eating fish. No. But it was just kind of. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd experience. Um, salty? You know, not that much, actually. Mm. Less than fish meat is salty. Right. Um, yeah, we had loads of um, loads of amazing 
sushi, loads of amazing sashimi, most of it fish, um, of course. obviously. Yeah. So, so something, some I wasn't expecting, like there was a, there was a like classic tuna mm. uh, salmon, like yeah. really high quality, um, as you probably would expect. Um, but uh, mackerel was one I wasn't necessarily mm. expecting to have in Japan. Um, and uh, but the best sushi that I have had was Hida beef, which is I haven't heard of before. But it's a so it's a type of wagyu, like mm-hmm. a really high quality Japanese beef, um, which I was told is kind of considered equivalent to Kobe beef, um, but I guess is less well known because we were in, we were near Hida, which is in, right. I think in Gifu, rather than Ishikawa, but. Um, it was just so so they they serve it as a sushi where it's just literally like I think that for like you know a second a matter of seconds around the outside and then they just serve it um, yeah sushi on top of rice and then on top of like an edible uh, rice cracker thing mm. and it was so good it was a street food actually wow um, and that was really really good it also had something which um, apparently was like the original form of sushi okay. so. Because I guess sushi is a thing that kind of relies on modern refrigeration methods. Right? Yeah, freezing. Because um, you can't just leave raw fish out no. all day. Um, but this, we, we were told, was the original sushi, which is um, basically fermented fish. Mm. So we had a few uh, dishes that were like this, but the one that was was really, really good was it was a sardine or sardines that had been fermented for five years wow that's um, that's going to be pungent and they presented it with just like a tiny little portion it was wrapped up in in like a little leaf and they were like it's one of these things you've got your chopsticks you get a tiny bit of it on the end mm. where you get some rice and then you get a lot of rice right and because it's, it's like it's going to be yeah the flavour is insane yeah but insanely strong but it was so good it was like um it was like salted fish, like bacalhau or whatever, but then combined with um, like blue cheese, which sounds Ooh. weird. There we get that fermented note, aren't you, from the... But because they're both so salty. Yeah. And, they're bo- and both fermented. Funky. Funky, but mm. I mean, I love that. Yeah, love absolutely. Yeah, um, 100%. That was really good. And then, um, yeah, the amount of... So, again, just really good fish. We went to this place called Gujo, where it's famous for... Um, they call it ayu, but it's like sweet fish. I right. think we call it in English. Um, and that's like their local thing. We had that done three ways, but one of them was just like baked and salted. One of them was in sort of like some kind of like miso thing. And then one of them was, I can't remember what the other one was. Very, very good. But um, also managed to tick off something that I think anyone with a passing interest in either, either Japanese cuisine or the simpsons mm. would love to try <laughs> which is fugu of course blowfish. wow and before i went i i, I was thinking like maybe because i did this trip and then i was on my own in kyoto at the end and i was thinking well maybe in kyoto i'll try and seek it out mm. because i i didn't think i'd get ser- just get served it you know when, when i was uh, on this trip uh but lo and behold i did so we were just sitting down one of these like eight course meals and they went oh this is fugu <laughs> And it was like, it wasn't sashimi, it was cooked uh, in this instance. I think you can have it as sashimi. But fugu is, um, yeah, this uh, is blowfish, puffer fish, uh, where parts of the fish, including the liver and the ovaries, I think, are extremely toxic. Yeah. One of the most deadly meals you can possibly have, they say, if it's not prepared in the correct way. If it's not prepared in the correct way. So that's the key thing is like, if you have it in a restaurant like I do, or the vast majority of people... um, then I think there's virtually no risk. But people do every year, they die from it. Um, but it's normally, I think, when they make it at home. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, they have it outside of a kind of highly regulated thing because it's one of these things which in Japan, as I found out, is very, it's common to lots of different industries and stuff. But um, you train for, you know, years, years and years and years to be able to do this very one specific thing. Um so yeah, the fugu contains, <clears throat> let me just consult my notes, uh, a neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin, um, which is more than a thousand times stronger than potassium cyanide. 
one fish contains enough poison to kill 30 men. <laughs> uh, there's no known antidote, antidote. And so if you fall prey to fugu poisoning, you have to get or this tetrodotoxin poisoning. You basically just get put on life support until hopefully your body metabolizes it naturally. Mm. So you get put on a ventilator or whatever. Um, that apparently the emperor of Japan is forbidden from eating it. Wow, yeah. In case he decides high to risk. Yeah. feel like uh, he wants a bit of fugu. Um, so if the, the, the most famous vi- victim of... The most famous victim of fugu was um, a guy called Bando Mitsuguro VIII. Right. Right. Who was a, he was a famous kabuki actor. Kabuki being like this um, classical theatre form in Japan where the, a lot of the famous, um, particularly nowadays... Kabuki actors go on to become like movie stars mm. and stuff. So it's like, it's an old tradition, but it's also very much still a big thing in right uh, in Japanese life. And this guy clearly thought he was pretty big bollocks, probably within, probably um, justifiably, because, I mean, for one thing, his name was Bando Mitsuguro VIII, which is quite cool. <laughs> Yeah, um, and he had also been deemed a couple of years before he died a living national treasure by the Japanese government. Yeah, I mean, so you're like, going to back yourself with a, a big guy. With a, with he's a backstory story like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> hey, this guy. Turns out the, the reason that um, apparently he was called the eighth is because there's this tradition where it's passed down through the family. So he was right. like the eighth generation of. Accent, so his father, accent, his father, his yeah. father were all kabuki actors. Right. So it's like no pressure sort of thing. Oh. You kind of, if you, want, if you want it to become like a florist or whatever, it's not much yeah. choice. <laughs> I don't think I've much choice in the man. Um, but he went to a um, restaurant in Kyoto in 1975, this was. He ordered four portions of fugu liver, which is, that's, liver's yeah. the bit you don't eat, right? If, yeah, if, that's if, the most dangerous bit. That's the really, really poisonous bit. And he claimed that he could survive the poison. So I think maybe <laughs> the height, he believed his own hype a little bit. Um and yeah, safe to say he passed from being a living national treasure to being a, a dead national treasure. <laughs> eight hours of slow paralysis, breathing failure, and ultimately death. Sad. Sad. I mean, one of the sad. Greats. it's always sad to lose a great kabuki actor. Yeah, one I've of the greats. I believe now you, you, it's no longer possible to buy or order the liver. It became illegal. Um, I think shortly after that, yeah. but I mean, or in the eighties or something, but it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, there's probably low, it's probably like not illegal to order a pint of bleach in a restaurant, <laughs> <laughs> but right. no one would ever do it because it's yeah. so stupid. It's like yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they decided they would make it illegal. Um, but clearly lots of places where you can still get fugu. And I have to say it was really, really nice. Mm. Um, just like a, I mean, it was just like fish, just like a nice fish. Was it was it better because of? Was, it, was there anything particularly special about it, or could you get no. that from fish? I mean, I would never have known that it wasn't that it was like a different type of fish. Right. It was just like oh, this is nice, but like I said, I had it grilled, not as sashimi, and so it's kind of like uh, uh, I don't know. I guess maybe you maybe you sashimi get more of the, yeah, the subtlety, yeah, yeah. But then the people who claim that. Um, you know, the liver, the people who like have maybe eaten the liver or the ovaries, whatever, I think they, they, the claim is that that's the tastiest part. But I think that's like probably a theme that we'll come back to over the course of this podcast. Mm. People say these things about food. Yeah. Why do people eat <laughs> like dangerous or disgusting foods? Yeah. And there's always some claim where it's like, ah, oh, it increases your virility or it tastes... It's always virility. It tends to be virility because <laughs> it's te- yeah. pathetic men. Pathetic who, uh, <laughs> men who think that justifying that's you. why they, yeah, they're going to up their libido. But then, yeah, as, as you said, there's also an element of uh, that's the best tasting part or, you know, the most luxurious part, um, yeah. all those sorts of things. The most expensive part for whatever reason. On which note? Mm-hmm. Yes. Chicken sashimi is a weird thing there in Japan. Chicken sashimi is a weird thing they eat in Japan. So I've got a little uh, for and against pros and cons of chicken sashimi, <laughs> Dan, for you. Seeing as, yeah. you know, you've, as we discussed, you've eaten some pretty out there things on your more recent trip to Japan. Yeah. You've eaten fugu, which certainly many 
people would avoid given the inherent risks um even though you know if you get it in the right place it is generally fine but have you heard of tori sashi i have not no well tori sashi is it translates translates as raw bird um which uh as you can imagine uh is a chicken sashimi so raw chicken yes I've come across this concept before. Very thinly sliced. Um, usually raw. Sometimes they grill the, the edges or they boil the chicken for 10 seconds. So you get, you know, that outside is is white. The, the inside is still very much your your typical raw I th- chicken. I feel like that they're paying lip service to the idea of food hygiene by doing that. Yeah, because... I, would, I, would, I think so. Yeah. Um, not, the juices aren't going to be running clear if you... See it outside for ten seconds. Right? Yeah, from what from what the, the, what it looks like really is like you know tuna steak when it's been really 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 rare tuna yeah. steak, but the middle of the tuna is chicken yeah, pink. Yeah, <laughs> Not, yeah. 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 Um, so here's the four list. As we've talked about, you know, Japan is all about heroing the freshest, the best, the most quality um, ingredients. There is a tradition of eating raw fish, as we've mm-hmm. talked about, eating raw beef, raw eggs. It is very much part of their culture. Um, the places that do serve it, they take, in, similar to fugu, they take great pride in what they do. They make sure you know, the chicken is killed that morning. They have to be very careful about where they cut the meat from, so the meat has to come from the breast. The most poisonous parts of the chicken in terms of salmonella are in the intestine, so they have to be very careful about that. But again, since food, they can remove that breast without infecting it, they say, with with salmonella. Um, And that's about it in terms of the pros. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So again, so obviously I've already mentioned salmonella. Yeah. That's, that's a big that's the big bogeyman, isn't it? Salmonella. Salmonella is a huge, huge issue with this. Yeah. Uh, raw, raw chicken cases cause cases of salmonella. There's a million cases in the US per year. Wow, really? Just the people not cooking their chicken enough. Mm. Uh, and in this case, we're talking about eating it without cooking it at all. Yeah. Uh, there's a thing called Campylobacter, which is the the main cause of food poisoning. Um, across the board across the board oh, right. that particular virus or yeah. uh, bacteria I believe is the main is one of the most toxic bacteria right, okay. um, also present in the intestine of a of a dead chicken right um, similar to talk about sushi and we talk about fish and beef the whole reason the sushi industry can really function is that they freeze all the fish beforehand on the boat is that right I didn't even know that um, yeah. and that kills any uh, parasites, oh, okay. but these things, Salmonella and Campylobacter, are not parasites. They're bacteria, and they can't be killed by freezing. So, no matter if you freeze the chicken, you're not right. gonna yeah, okay. get rid of that. Um, and there's yeah, again, coming back to the fugu point. So, fugu, if you are you know, it's well, well regulated, um, they have to go under you know, two or three years of training, right, mm-hmm. to be able to produce fugu correctly and to be able to serve that to people. Um, and that's all regulated by Japan's health ministry and their food ministry. Yeah. On this one, that same, those same ministries say, don't bother. Really? <laughs> they say, no, like, it's not a good is idea. It, is it quite a new thing? I feel like I've not really heard about it that much until recently. I, th- I think it's one of those things where it's very, very traditional in sort of small small areas and pockets and then as kind of you know the proliferation of all sorts of cultures and cuisines and yeah. particularly in big cities kind of smashed together and then people have heard about it and, and kind of spread it all over the world yeah. they've uh, it's become bigger and bigger um, but I think I'm right in saying that even salmonella in itself is like it's a product of mass production farming because mm. so, I think like if you're out in the, in the wild in the middle of nowhere and you catch a chicken yeah obviously you cook it if you can but like, there's not the same risks with salmonella. I think salmonella mm. is like a thing that came from farming and like chickens yeah. being crammed all together. Yeah, exactly. So that's why the, the restaurants, they sort of say, 
you know, this has come from, you know, the most uh, free range, right, yeah. you know, highest quality bird you can imagine. There's not a problem. Yeah. Um, but then there's also things like roundworm, which, you know, the, uh, there's a really interesting article you can read online about a guy who contracted roundworm, started getting growths on two of his organs from Can eating we... uh, Torishashi. Wow. Uh, eventually went blind and he was similar to because um, a worm was eating the, the actor we were talking about before he regularly ate Tori Sashi and boasted about it and eventually right. it sent him blind and caused growths on two of his organs um, so that I've kind of I feel like I might have led the witness a bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah but given well I'm easily led <laughs> given the uh, the pros and cons another pro I think is actually in um no reservations by Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. He, he goes, he's in Tokyo and he goes to a, a, a yakitori restaurant and eats it. He there. does it. He goes for it. Yeah. Yeah. So. So there's a pro. There's always a pro, there's a pro, but would, um, would you do it? Would you go for it? You know what? I, my, in, based on my experience of, uh, of being in Japan both times is that it's just like, it's the kind of place where it's so hard to... Be- Obviously, bad things do happen in Japan. Mm. It's so hard to believe that anything bad will happen to you. <laughs> uh, because it's, it just seems as though everything's so well-regulated. Mm. Uh, but it, it, that just made me think that... I, one of the little towns we went to... Um, I remember there was, like, seeing a thing about... And the... We were being told, obviously, through a translator, but, like, they were, like... a bit, um, There was a sign that said, like about the local police force and it was basically for this place and this place and this place and there was like you know it's like there was like one police officer for like uh you know whatever like a 15 square mile radius like yeah. a massive area yeah and they were just like yeah crime just doesn't happen here mm. of, or like crimes like low level crimes don't happen here and then um we in literally in the same town we, we put up outside this um i think it was like a shop there was a row of pictures of like photos of like shady looking characters um and we were like uh what are they what was what's this what's all this about yeah and our translator said oh they're wanted for murder (laughs) (laughs) so they're like local murderers so it's like you can walk into someone's house um and you can you know they leave the doors there's no petty fest they leave their doors open because you know saving face is a big thing over there it's like very shameful to um steal some rice from someone's house or whatever. Yeah. But um, I, I guess if you're going to murder someone, you're beyond that. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, so probably still goes on. Anyway, all of which is irrelevant other than to say things like food hygiene are very well regulated in Japan. Yes. So I feel like, um, yes, I would um, eat chicken sashimi. I reckon the ideal situation is for it to be kind of thrust upon you, like Fugu was with me. Like right. I wanted to eat it. Yeah, but if if I had been on my own, and I'd sort it out. I would, I'd probably, even though it would have been stupid to feel nervous about it, I probably would have felt a bit like, "Is this the right place to it?" And I would have had it and been like, oh. "I mean, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, as you know. Anyway, mm. the best times, <laughs> I would have been like, oh, "Christ, like my my organs, my kidneys." <laughs> um, but uh, I re- but as it was, obviously, I was just presented with it, so I just ate it, mm. and then it was delicious. And mm. awesome. That was it. So yes, I would try it, but I would try and vet my venue a little bit. Yeah, you'd want quality venue. You know what? I would I would try a piece of someone else's. I wouldn't I wouldn't order one. And if it was separate, you know, maybe if it was thrust upon me, it's a different thing. But if you had some, you ordered it. I was like, you know what? I have a bit, but low low risk exposure basically. Oh, you reckon if you have less, it's less of I suppose it is less yeah, yeah. of a risk. It's less, yeah, that bit might not have been contaminated as much as the other. Yeah. the whole portion. Toxic overload yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. Viral load. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do like a uh, Tesco value, even finest. No. Even corn fed so it looks a bit yeah. yellow. Yeah. I would not eat that raw. The no, thing so. is, when you're looking at the pictures of this stuff online, it just looks like it's the stuff from Tesco. Mm. Chicken is very... Chi- chicken is chicken, very kind yellow. of. You know, obviously like beef or steak... You get varying qualities. You look at a great piece of meat, and you're like, "Wow, that looks amazing!" Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. chicken, chicken just looks like chicken. Although yeah. I'm sure there are, no, I'm sure it is higher quality than Tesco. No offense to the chicken community. <laughs> no offense to chickens <laughs> everywhere. <laughs>
one thing I remembered mm. when, when when you're talking about um, the various roundworms, ringworms, mm. hideous creatures that survive on foods, obviously all sorts of foods, but maybe you just don't see it. And most of them don't harm you, I guess. But um, another, an amazing culinary experience I had in Japan, one of the probably, really, probably the highlight of this trip in terms of eating was um, I went to an oyster farm mm. where we went out on the boat and um, it was really, inter- it was interesting to see how, so it's, they're kind of farmed, but it's like, pretty natural it seemed like so they what what i didn't know is that oysters or this kind of oysters anyway i think they i guess pacific oysters um grow on scallop shells ah i didn't know that and so that happens naturally anyway uh but they just um encourage it by putting these shells on the seabed put them on a string and then they go and bring them up Mm. sort of thing so we went out with them and they we went out for a bit and they brought them up on like they were like, this is the halfway point, and they're just like little baby ones. Yeah. And then we went out to the the proper ones, the big boys. They brought them up, and um, I cut, it really made you because obviously, like you, when you're just like an urban idiot, milk sop, <laughs> you don't really know how. Even when you grew up in the countryside, like we did. You don't really know how foods. No. No, the reality get, it, get your chicken from Tesco and then you cook it exactly <laughs> um, so they brought this stuff up and obviously as you expect it's covered in like seaweed and stuff but what what surprised me was they chuck it on the floor of the boat and the amount of other animals that come off mm. it is incredible yeah like little wriggling little worms and stuff like I mean kind of hor- horrible really mm. like to to, my, to our naive eyes but also like all around the outside of the oysters there's this like apparently it's an animal so oh, it's not a, like a, a plant or whatever but it's like um i don't know how to describe it it's like these like yellow veins of like writhing horrible like they're like slugs but they seem to be stuck in place almost like i don't know maybe like a not like a coral but like they're like um there's a type of sea worm. It's like a nematode or something. Yeah, like nematode. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe that. I don't yeah. know. But they were like on the outside. I know that like nematodes can live sort of in the innards of it, but they weren't. These oysters were not like diseased. No, as in the but they're just meat they're gnarly things that live under the sea. They have the that whole track yeah. life. It has an ecosystem on the ecosystem. outside of it. Yeah, and it was amazing to see. But uh, yeah, this guy, the fisherman, just took it. Cracked it open, shucked it, and was like, get involved with that. So just take it, dip it. It's on the, he just did it, put it on the edge of the, of the boat. You're a, you're a, you're a maritime man. <laughs> the <laughs> shelf of the boat called the, the side arm, the arm, like an armchair. That. The helm? Um, <laughs> and uh, just said, just take that, wash it off in the sea, eat it. I've got to say, I mean, I've eaten a lot of oysters in my life, but that was unbelievable. That was amazing. It was like, uh, obviously normally when you eat an oyster, you've got the deliciousness, saltiness, but this was like, um, it really, the meatiness of it was Mm. insane. It was like eating a bit of meat that was also like dipped in sea salt. Sea salt. Yeah. Wow. Very good. Wow. That's incredible. Very good. Also in the realm of, hideous bizarre foods that people eat willingly when it's known to be a health hazard Mm. you've got kasumatsu the sardinian maggot cheese yes um which apparently is uh so basically it's a cheese derived apparently from pecorino Mm -hmm. um friend of the show yeah pecorino (laughs) um which Kasumatsu, this is according to our old friend Wikipedia, goes beyond fermentation to actually mm. get very, very nasty. <laughs> to a stage of decomposition brought about by the digestive action of the larvae of the cheese fly of the Pyophilidae family. Maggots. 
Pedo maggots. <laughs> pedo maggots. <laughs> um, maggots. Introduce the cheese in advanced level of fermentation, breaking down the cheese's fats. Uh, the cheese becomes very soft with some liquid called lagrima, as in lacrima tears, sardinia for teardrop. Oh, beautiful. Maggot Seep, shit. <laughs> some of that seeping out. Mm. Um, yeah. They lay a female of the species of the fly can lay 500 eggs at one time. The eggs hatch and they eat through the cheese. They break down the cheese's fats. The cheese becomes very soft. They pull out the cheese. And like with all these things, shock horror, uh, Kasumatsu is believed to be an aphrodisiac by some Oh, Kel Surprise. Kel Surprise. I mean, again, I, mean, I feel like it's going to become a recurring theme in this podcast, but everything you eat, uh, including some of the more bizarre things that we've eaten, which I feel like we'll probably go into in a later episode, yeah. maybe. But uh, they're always deemed to be you eat it and you think like this isn't this doesn't taste very nice so like you ask whatever like a local like why why do people eat this again it's all invariably it's a man sitting yeah in like a man's cafe there's no way surrounded by men yeah and you're like why do you eat this and he's like very good very strong makes you strong virility. strong and they do that motion with their yeah. arm which the universal the, wild, but... the universal sign of fragile masculinity yeah the clenched fist the clenched fist um and you just think I'm not sure if I believe that. <laughs> I don't think the science backs this up, guys. No. Um, Having said that, you know, there's th- talking back to the cheese. There's other uh, foodstuffs and drinks that are excreted by animals, and it adds a beneficial flavour. That's true. Coffee, so, yeah, exactly. The Indonesian coffee. Yep. So there's, you know, there's a thought behind it perhaps but I think that the real issue with this cheese is that you do have to eat a live you have to eat few maggots I mean at least you're eating the real deal because I know that like with Kapiluak for example which mm. is this in I think I'm already saying it's Indonesian certainly they have it in Indonesia where the idea is um, seen by the civet cat which yeah. is like a kind of I think it's like a, uh, like a ferret, ferret type, type thing, thing yeah. Yeah. and um, the, the idea is that in the wild they eat the coffee beans that are the most, the best coffee beans, yeah. like the ripest, whatever. Um, and then they eat them. So they're good coffee beans already. They eat them and in the process of them eating them, going through the digestive system and then like them pulling them out, it becomes kind of in some way treated in some way to make mm. it even nicer. And they take those coffee beans and then they make coffee out of them. Yeah. It's made better. A vast cost. A vast cost. But then now there's this whole industry whereby... They just put civets in battery farms, force feed them coffee beans, get them to pull them out, and therefore completely defeating the whole point of they go and pick them yeah. by, their, yeah. by themselves yeah, in the wild. pick the best beans, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So but you can't force feed a maggot. I've always said it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't force feed a maggot. Uh, and they're, not, they're famously not fussy eaters. No. I mean, they'll eat anything. So... Um, I don't know where I stand on it, but again, obviously, I would try it. I would try it. I'm into trying that. Because all time. these things are, you know, you get, it's about the anecdote, yeah, ultimately. Absolutely. <laughs> Do absolutely. you enjoy the food? Of course not. <laughs> but I think with that one, at least you know, up front, just you make, make sure you chew a lot, chomp those maggots down... Well, yeah, there's another thing. So some people supposedly, I think you can, there are various schools of thought of how you eat this. So you can spread it on toast or a crack mm. or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think in so doing, you just, you mainly get the cheese rather than any maggots. Um, Pathetic. This can the cow as well. But then you can also, um, I was just reading it again on, on our old friend Wikipedia. Um, friend some, some people, uh, because the larvae in the cheese can launch themselves for distances of up to 15 centimetres when disturbed. Mm. So that adds a That's kind of okay. theatre like to the proceedings, yeah. which yeah. I quite like. Diners hold their hands above the sandwich uh, when they're eating it on the moistened Sardinian flatbread. So you're, like, you're, you're holding your hand to prevent your food jumping at you. Yeah. As a she- a food I love shield. that. I, I, I love it. Food is not... Um, <laughs> doesn't require enough audience interaction. <laughs> in 
Absolutely. Um, so you, you hold your hand above the sandwich to prevent the maggots from leaping. But there's some who eat the cheese prefer to not ingest the maggots. Those who do not wish to, inge- to eat them place the cheese in a sealed paper bag. The maggots, starved for oxygen, writhe and jump in the bag, creating a pitter-patter sound. When the sounds subside, the maggots are dead and the cheese can be eaten. So how, Which is lovely. How long does it take to eat your sandwich? Because, like, if it, you're making a sandwich and you want to eat it, you know, immediately... What's the time consideration on that? I mean, I yeah, think... Pack lunch, fine. Yeah, to bear in mind, we're talking about Sardinia here. Yeah. Life goes a little slower. They may rush a breakfast, <laughs> but they will not rush a lunch. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, they're, they're very keen to get to work on time, so it's just a cap- uh, an espresso at the bar. Kind of sit down. That's kind of sit down. Yeah. Come lunchtime. Yeah. That will be leisurely. That, it will at be best. Le- It will be leisurely. <laughs> the best you can hope for is leisurely. Which brings... I mean... So this cheese is banned in the EU, mm. which obviously includes Sardinia, but uh, you can find it, I've been told. I've mm. never had it. I'd like to have it. I'd like to try it. Perhaps a future Hungry Ghosts field trip will be to try Katsumazu. I think that's a good idea. Um, but uh, I think that, like with lots of these things, yeah. you go to a, a local farmhouse in Sardinia, Maggot cheese could be on the menu. Give him a wink. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, to the old nonna. Doris. Grazie mille. <laughs> Grazie mille. Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about. Mm. Should have said earlier when we were talking about sake. I've heard that sake doesn't... Um, you don't want to leave it for too long. So we should drink all this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you I'm want, gonna mix it. You want to mix I'm it? I'm gonna make a medium. Fine. I want a medium. There you go. And this sake is very sweet. Uh, sweeter, like I keep saying, but very much sweeter than mm. I expected. Roger I Wilkins would love that. Yeah, friend of the Roger show. Roger Wilkins. Perhaps, in fact, we should touch on our friend Roger Wilkins mm. because um, <sighs> where to begin with Roger Wilkins? We're both from the West Country, and of course, cider is the the sake. The, the national West drink of the West yeah, Country. The exactly. sake, you're correct. The sake. Um, yeah. yeah. Infuses every realm yeah. of life in the, yeah. in the West Country. And when it was lockdown time, mm. the first time, dare lockdown we one. suggest it, don't want to go on about it, but um, there was, there's a, a local um, famous cider maker in Somerset called Roger Wilkins and his cider farm, Wilkins Cider, um, I think was had a big reputation before, but so we were in the area and we decided we'll go get some cider. He sells cheese as well. Yeah, we walked in and there's this. It's like the most West Country thing you've ever seen because it's like a cavernous barn full of cider barrels, <laughs> and then there's a Banksy on the wall, <laughs> like a genuine Banksy. On the wall. And then and also two piss blokes who'd been there for hours. Two piss blokes playing cards and rolling fat. Who'd also definitely driven there. Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. no other way to get there. We, we walked. We walked. We actually, walked. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. We walked. But um, sitting on upturned cider barrels. Mm. And then and obviously, like it was like, if there were saloon doors, they would have yeah. been swinging behind yeah. us. But uh, we were not... By the, by the patrons, not given the most immediate warm welcome. No, but by, by Roger. By Roger. As paying customers. We were old friends. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we went in and uh, well, he, he went, do you want some cider? <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And he went, we got we got dry or we got sweet? Or I can do you a medium. And we went, maybe we'll try the medium. And he just went and got half of a dry and half of a <laughs> sweet and just mixed them together, which I have endless respect for. Mm. Um and Rogers, I mean, later on in the pandemic, yes, was well. He, he became. I think early on, he, people were saying he, he hit the headlines because he said that his cider was a cure for COVID nineteen. Correct. Which I'm a hundred percent willing to believe, as long as it doesn't make you blind, it will probably cure you of every ailment. Under did we or did we not drink Roger Wilkins cider for every day of the first? We three drank months it of every day of the first three months. Did we or did we not get never COVID? Did us any harm? We didn't get. We COVID. didn't get COVID. So, ipso facto. Ipso facto, Roger Roger Wilkins cider cures COVID. Yeah. And it's just good stuff. Oh, it's brilliant. It's full of vitamins, apples. Apples, 
What's wrong with apple? And have you ever heard the old adage, an apple a day keeps the doctor away? Yeah, oh, wow. a pint of apple a day. A pint of... A pint of... Eight to 13 pints of apple a day. Apple a day. Mixed with... I'm not really mixed with anything, but fermented beyond belief. I mean, mm. I can't... God. Well, that's proper it's not Somerset cider. It's that. not for the casual drinker, put it that way. No. No. God, no. It's you sweet. couldn't... If you, you couldn't see your hand through just, let alone one bottle of it, let alone a foot of it. No. It's, no, no you, uh, that's not the point. You wouldn't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's very good stuff. Anyway, what are you even talking about? Roger? <laughs> Roger uh, they're mixing sake. the su- the sake. Mixing together. the sake in the drop, right? This sake bowl. I was thinking, looking at this. So the label is how to paint a picture for the listener. Uh, some nice Japanese writing, and then what well, at first I thought was a geisha, but I don't think it is a geisha. I think it's a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I reckon that's like a shogun of some sort. Some kind of shogun. Or daimyo, as you said. Daimyo, yeah. yeah. Anyway, on the topic of geishas, I was lucky enough to have... Oh. What? What <laughs> 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 can I explain? Um... We had a one of the amazing multi-course meals that we had uh, was a geisha evening. Mm. Now, pray tell <laughs> <laughs> they. So, in the Western imagination, a yeah, geisha yeah, has yeah, been. Yeah, 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 you're yeah, aware of this, of yeah. course. <laughs> but um, so we had the full. The, so in we were in Kanazawa, which is in Ishikawa Prefecture, which is like a very old city. Sat lots of samurai history. Um, and most of the geishas who exist now are in either Kyoto or in Kanazawa. Okay. But we're still, we're talking about in the hundreds rather than thousands. Mm. There's hardly any of them yeah. in, in the whole of the country. But it's still very much, a, it's not It's not like a touristy thing, really. It's like a, it's still part of the culture. So like pe- when people have important business meetings and stuff, mm. um, they might hire geishas and they'll, they like sing traditional songs and play instruments and then they sit and talk to them, talk to you, as happened to us. So, and you drink sake with them and stuff and like, obviously we were, we had a translator and it was a lot of just, well, what's it like trying to be a geisha? What's your day-to-day like? And they were like, oh, you got to do your tax return. I was like, so why? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so that we saw the genuine side of the geisha experience, which yeah. was really interesting. When I was in Kyoto, which again is the home of a lot of this really traditional food, like kaiseki cuisine, which is like the um, elaborate multi-course, like when you have eight-course dinners, yeah. a lot of that is kaiseki cuisine. Um after in Kyoto, so I was researching an article about the music scene in Kyoto, mm-hmm. which was a very fun one to research. You can imagine, went to a lot of gigs and like club nights and stuff. And um, I had a guide um, in Kyoto who was a brilliant guy. He was an expat, and he w- we were sitting, we were having a drink in a bar, and he was telling me about someone he knows. Who so we have we've travelled in Asia quite a lot together. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone you meet, like, there's always these characters who are just, there's the odd yeah. kind of, there's a lot of shady characters in that world. Oh, God. Yeah. So this, this guy was telling me about someone that he knows who is, uh, I mean, probably safe to say, having not met him, but from the sounds of things, a sex tourist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and he was like, telling me about this guy, he's like, kind of like a seedy guy. I think he was an American guy. But, and he was saying... He keeps trying to convince me to come to these bars where um, the girls are like, they're like failed geishas. <laughs> and I was thinking like, I can't imagine a more seedy sounding thing. Oh, no. Obviously, there were yeah. certain implications about what a failed geisha might, what yeah. kind of line of work they might fall into, even though like geishas have nothing to do with that. Yeah. Um, but also because I was doing an article about like the Japanese punk scene, and I was thinking I had a real Alan Partridge moment of thinking like, "That's a good name for a band." <laughs> Failed geishas. <laughs> Failed geishas. Um, so didn't go to the Failed Geisha bar, but you know what? 
sound like a pretty good time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>